Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the CTO Studio. I, of course, am your host, Nikolai Walker, on the mic and in your ear. Now, we are joined today in studio. It is our very, very pleasure to have Wayne Haber. He's the Director of Engineering at GitLab. And I'm going to let him take over and kind of give us a breakdown of what he's done and what he is doing rather than me go on and on and on about it. So, Wayne, here's the mic. Sure. So uh, I'm a, one of the directors of engineering at GitLab, which uh, has the uh, solutions for the entire DevOps lifecycle. And uh, I currently run the or am responsible for the growth and fulfillment teams. Um, team size of about 45 people and growth focuses on growth experiments and growth hacking per se to make customer experience better and also to grow revenue. Things like improving signups, improving conversions from free to paid accounts, things like that. And also then the whole fulfillment team, which is responsible for um, licensing and purchasing of the GitLab uh, products and services. And uh, it's the most, used to be the uh, biggest all remote company in the world, but that's no longer true, you know, post uh, reaction to the pandemic, but we're still all remote, no actual office anywhere with 1300 something uh, team members and also one of the most transparent companies in the world where most of what we do because it's an open source product, but also because um, we operate in the open, our handbook is all public on the internet, which is uh, pretty interesting. And we get a lot of feedback. It's great to share information. We also get a lot of feedback from the industry in general and from our users, et cetera, on the product and also how we operate as a company. Um, previously, I was at a security company uh, that was a, a acquired by Dell and was there for quite a few years. Very cool. And how long have you been at GitLab? GitLab, a little more than a year and a half. Okay. And I, I'm always fascinated by the open handbook approach. Is there just a policy that there, there are no secrets or is it not quite that? There are some things that we're not transparent about. There are some secrets, but we actually explicitly document what those things are in the handbook. And the reason we make the handbook, in my opinion, public is it gets the information out there to all, it gives a single source of truth so people know where to go. So there's not a handbook page that's public and then a Google doc to go with it. The handbook page is, a sim, is the single source of truth it gets information out there. It helps our users understand how we operate. We have a lot of um, uh, in the community that are a big proponents of open source, so they get to see how we operate and how we do things. It helps get information out there to uh, all the team members or employees. It also gets us great feedback from the public. Uh, so, for example, one thing I never expected, since many meetings are on YouTube, live streamed or recorded later, and because the handbook is so public, it's a great recruiting tool. I've heard from many candidates, Wayne, the reason I came to your team is I was able to see your team meetings and know if I wanted to come. Or the reason why we're interested in the company, I heard from somebody this morning that's a potential candidate. Um, they liked what we were doing in the open source community and what we do for serving uh, underrepresented groups. And we have all that information, both what's going well and what we want to improve upon, which is great. But some things aren't public, like acquisitions um, are not public. Uh, Things that financial results, the details of financial results are not public, but it's a very, it's a relatively small number of things. Yeah, I think I saw uh, your VP of engineering's, who also happens to be a member of, or I, I forget his title, but um, I think I saw one of his reports to management on delivery and uptime and metrics, overall metrics, and some of the metrics were not flattering, and it was amazing just to see him 
comment on sort of what the plan was to to do a better job and and uh yeah it's it's quite it, it it's amazing yes and then when i got here it was somewhat disconcerting to start like oh i'm on the internet now and i'm used to being everything being private and you know um the benefits definitely outweigh the, the negatives in my opinion so um the one thing is uh, like we have issues, you know, we use the GitLab product itself to develop the product and issues and tasks, et cetera. And generally they're public, probably 99% of them I'd estimate. And you not only have uh, team members or employees working on something, you know, working on a task on an app, you know, in an agile board, but you'll have customers watching it. You'll have competitors watching it and commenting on it, potential partners, uh, people who don't like the company, commenting on it. So, you know, people um, um, uh, trolling those issues. And it's really interesting to have that level of feedback. So you're operating in the open and, um, but it's great to have all that feedback. It makes things stronger. I've learned, given a great example of that is when um, we were working on switching from one open source product or a, a project integrated into GitLab with a different one. And we mentioned the new one and the original author of that who's formed an entire company around that open source project was raving at how awesome it was. We didn't even, we never met this person before. They were just watching the issue and saw it and then started commenting and gave us great ideas. And it turned into a business partnership, not just, a, you know, in addition to the open source. Yeah. I, open I can imagine that so much of the interview process and the hiring process is how do we, how do we give the candidates sort of a, uh, a running start with how we work and how we do business so that they can decide and we can decide if that candidate is going to be successful in our environment. And what better way than to even top of funnel, just show people how you work. And I imagine, I know that with GitLab, there was a phase where you were hiring profusely like most tech companies. And as you're, competing with other companies for talent, just putting that out there so openly and so transparently, um, you know, it's, it's, I can imagine that that saved you probably just an amazing amount of money in recruiting fees. Yeah. It's recruiting still hard, you know, as everybody finds to find the right, have the right people find you and for you to vet them. It, it does make it, uh, you get, you know, glass doors, clean, but it's biased, of course. Um, for looking at any company and, you know, reading companies' websites are great and the job description's great, but they're also biased, right? They're biased towards the company or, you know, or Glassdoor, you know, it's recently hired team members who are very enthused about their new job and also, you know, people who've left who may or may not be happy. So when you get to see those meetings in particular, you get to see some of the warts and also some of the successes, like you mentioned, it really gives you a feel for the team and the personalities of the team in an unfiltered way. And actually we call the, um, the channel on um, YouTube, GitLab Unfiltered, um, and it uh, it works out well. Is this something that you would recommend for for all companies? Let's say all privately held companies. Would you recommend this? To some extent, yes. So GitLab can do it because we, in my opinion, because it's an open source product, um, and we want the community contributing to it, um, and we also operate in the open. It's part of our DNA. Um, not all companies can do that to the extent that we do. Um, but I think being more open and vulnerable is great for companies to do when they can talk about, you know, non-financial information, because usually that's private, um, especially if it's a public company. 
and um, to attract candidates and let customers know how things are going and take a little bit of risk. So an example would be is, um, on one of the uh, tasks we were working on is uh, our procedures for determining which feature is going to be in which exact release. We're always improving. We're always iteratively improving along with everything. And it, it was really obvious, or it was really obvious to us how the process was following, how we labeled things. If something was a stretch goal or a committed goal, it wasn't obvious to people not on the team, especially customers. And a customer got really frustrated and said, hey, you said you were going to do this in X release, and now you're saying X plus two. And previously, you said you were going to get it done three months ago. Why? You're not meeting our expectations. And we had to go back to that customer and say, we're sorry, we, we could have documented this better. Here's how we do our planning. And they appreciated getting that information. And they went from an unhappy customer to a happy customer because we were able to share that with them. But you definitely have to watch for things like that. Um, but the benefits of it definitely outweigh the negatives. But you have to be very careful as a company and make sure you're executing well um, on your goals because the more you make public, the more your competitors see it. And if you're working on security things, the more the bad actors see it so they know what things you're taking. So you have to be careful. So for example, GitLab does not make everything public. Like what we're doing to combat the bad actors out there, we don't make public, at least not at a detail layer, because we don't really give them that information, at least not in all cases. In some cases we do, but we don't think it puts it at, at us at a disadvantage. But um, so definitely it, it's worth doing, but to do it judiciously. And I'd say much more than companies do it today, it's, it's worth considering, but doing it, I'd say starting small, getting support for it, seeing that the risk is not as big as it could be and then moving on. Yeah, I, I spoke with a security expert uh, a few months back and he was talking about how you can use your company's security policy, incidents, reports, um, protocols, whatever, as a competitive advantage by talking about it, having a page dedicated to it, and you have this sort of Yes, you're building this product out there, but the, how we view security and privacy in this day and age, you know, becomes something like, well, what do they do with my data? When was the last breach? How do they handle it? And he also sort of, he had this transparency approach about things that might be, feel like we need to keep private. And I'm, I'm sort of, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, okay, um, just use your company's general team management and operations and sundry as a competitive advantage for both your customers understanding you and your future employees um, understanding the culture. Yeah, absolutely. It, it does help. And, to, you know, and, and to an extent, so, you know, you may not give, you talk about what features you released to resolve security issues, but after you've given a chance for customers to patch for those. So you don't want to uh, do that too early. Um, but for example, if there's an outage, is telling your users what the outage is, what's going on, and even see them as you work it so that you can get their feedback, and but also gain their trust is really key. And many companies do that with outages. They'll publish an after-action report, which is great. And I think that's very that's great for every company uh, to do whenever they can. It really yeah, I love that. And uh, just to put a bow on this, so... I'm assuming you have a pretty st strict internal process for what gets merged into the handbook and who gets to do it and how it gets pushed. Actually, no. And that surprises me. 
um, that surprised me and still occasionally surprises me is we have, um, we'd rather take the risk of something getting merged that shouldn't be and then change it later, iteratively improve it later and improve it later, than disempower people from making those changes. So we do have owners of pages and the process says you should go to one of the owners to merge it. Um, and it might be the owners don't agree with each other. It might be the owners sometimes not clear. So sometimes things do get merged before the owner is ready for it to be done so, um, but we iteratively improve it over time and net it helps. So uh, anybody can contribute, even the public, to any part of the handbook, um, at least suggest things. And that's, um, it's a great thing, but yeah, we don't have tight controls over that, which at another company, previously in a you know, different company sort of scared me significantly because I was used to that regimented control, but I'd say the, the ability to have everybody contribute uh, and recommend changes in detail um, and then get feedback on those changes is great. Occasionally it goes um, off in the weeds where there's a controversial change and we'll end up from not just the public, but team members. You know, the company has 1300 employees, hundreds of comments on a change that people don't agree with or want to comment on. And then what we do is we do this uh, manager mention thing that we're experimenting with or doing, but also experimenting with to improve, where if something gets more than a certain number of comments, trying to negotiate all those comments and respond to everybody is challenging. So we want everybody to actually ask their manager, I think this, what is your thoughts on it? And push it up a level hierarchically so that we can make progress on controversial things. But I'd say that's maybe one out of two or 300 initiatives that, that gets to that level. I love what you said around not giving people some sort of, is it people or, or too much power to a process? Because in a way, I guess that, you know, I, it gives some individuals too much uh, authority or over the content and B, if there's the sense that I want to add something to the doc and now it's got to go through this authorization process, it might dissuade me and, and kill my enthusiasm to actually make a change. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's one thing to say those things and know they're true. It's a different thing to see them. Like I personally, I've made recommendations to the legal process. When I, um, because I'm not an attorney, but I've, made, I've worked with attorneys. I've made recommendations to the hiring process on how we vet new team members, whether they're part of engineering or not. Um, and uh, even how the CEO operates. I did the CEO shadow program, which the company runs, where any team member can apply to sit in on it's about 90% of the CEO's meetings and see all of his notes for two weeks and help take notes, but also learn a lot. I learned so much during that program. And, um, you know, I made changes and Sid, the CEO, said he liked some of them. He didn't like others. The ones he liked, he merged. The ones he didn't, he gave some feedback. Some of them we merged later with his feedback, some not. And uh, overall, it was, uh, it was great. It was, it was a great experience and it can continue. Self-management on a, on a grand scale. And with team members or employees, in, I think we operate in 20 different time zones. So the team members are all across the world. So we work very, very asynchronously. So you don't wait on others. You also have to provide a lot of context because the person who's picking things up from where you left it off or the people commenting on it may not know everything about the thing you're talking about as you do. So you have to get into the rhythm of providing more context, doing things in writing, recording things. And it really helps um, to leverage people across the world, different cultures, different levels of um, 
English, so this company operates in English, but it, we operate in, you know, in written form so often, even people who um, aren't as good as, at speaking English or um, where it's a second or third language, but their written and reading skills are great. They, they are awesome team members, just like everybody else, um, because we do so much in writing. It also helps to clarify a lot too. Um, and it's, in my opinion, a lot faster to read something than to you know, sit, read something for 10 minutes than listen, be a part of or listen to a recording of a 60 minute. Yeah, and it's also, if everything is documented this way, it's it's ultimate efficiency because it's leaves behind this wake of changes and in information that doesn't have to be reiterated. It just it just is in the document until people disagree. Then it becomes a challenge when when there's a when there's a significant disagreement. Um, trying to negotiate those things asynchronously is really challenging. We try to assign directly responsible directly responsible individuals DRIs. And that works out well, but we try to have the, the concept of, um, I think we extended something that uh, uh, Jeff uh, Bezos said is, you know, disagree and commit, is we've added a little bit of disagree, commit, and disagree. Um, so we work hard to disagree, have a decision maker make the decision, commit to that decision, and then continue discussing it, especially with this new information. That is challenging as things go across many time zones and over time, and everybody feels and does feel and is should be able to contribute to opinions on things. It does become challenging to make decisions when there's significant disagreement amongst many people, but um, still that's one out of a hundred things. So the other 99 go through so efficiently. It's great. Yes. Yes. I hear you. Yeah. The overall, the overall philosophy that says we'd rather, we'd rather deal with those extreme cases, even if it is fairly regularly, then the opposite end of the extreme, which is managing multiple rule books and playbooks in different places, segregating the whole company into who can see what. So this is just a far more uh, egalitarian way of, of running a company. What is there a danger of people not being aware of a significant process change because they, they didn't see the pull request, they didn't know? Definitely. Since things are changing so quickly and it's hard to get information out anyway, especially with how, how many time zones we operate on, and et cetera, uh, that is definitely a chance. So we're very forgiving um, of people not following the new process and saying, well, hey, by the way, the process changed as such. Please follow it. And we, we also try to codify it as much as possible. So we changed, for example, a number of times while I've been get, at GitLab how um, discretionary bonuses are done who can nominate, what the structure is for a nomination, who approves. And you can't make a mistake with it now. Well, I guess you theoretically can, but it's handled by a bot, right? So as long as you use the bot, it walks all the actors through the process. Um, if somebody, I guess how it could be bypassed accidentally, somebody tries to do it completely ad hoc, but then the, the bonus won't go through if that happens because it has to eventually get in the HR system. So it's a bot in Slack integrated with our HR system. And it works really well. Um, it's not a manual process. Um, so whenever we can codify those processes when they're important, it's key. You know, we're going through a you know, quarterly uh, promotion planning process. It's not codified yet. It's a bit in flux and we're working on it though. We're figuring out, we're working on it. We have uh, hard, we don't have hard due dates on some of it. There are more soft dates um, on target dates and it, we're working through it and improving it as we go, which is good. So the, once it's a repeatable process that especially many people are gonna do, it's important to not have people have to go read something to do it, but follow a process that um, a system that makes it easy for them is key. 
So, so just as we cap this topic, do you, and I'll put you on the spot a little bit, do you have coming, considering your whole career and the different environments you've worked in, do you have one or two or three absolute takeaways from this way of working that has forever changed the way you think about work? Yeah, I'd say definitely. It's if you trust the people and get them access to the information that you don't even know they need, not but that you that they might find useful, it can really make teams so much more higher morale and also higher impact. Um, I'd say also the working asynchronously, meaning recording almost everything, whether it's internally or externally available, writing everything down, having a single source of truth makes teams so much more efficient and effective um, and reduces miscommunication. And I'd say lastly, documenting things that are uncomfortable and making them openly transparent really helps to give people a sense of safety, like how promotions are done, how promotions are evaluated, pay scales. So, you know, the, the, the pay scales are, are for employees and for candidates. It used to be public, but we, we, we decided to take that down uh, from being public. But now candidates, any candidate for a job after they get to a certain level in the uh, application process can see the pay scale for that role. Many companies don't make that public uh, or don't make that available, but it opens up so many more things uh, to really empower people and to get their buy-in, which is which is awesome. So, uh, for my entire career, I will bring those things forward. Yeah, I think the uh, the asynchronous one, it's the time zones and all that. It's there's there's really no other way to do that. Uh, well, thank you, Wayne. I, I have so many more questions about this, but I'm going to turn us to the uh, the real topic at hand, which is and and maybe there's a, an interesting segue because. You have this open environment, you have this truth, single source of truth, you have this execution over laborious strategy sort of mindset. Uh, how does GitLab and how do you, and, and in your whole career, how do you view intellectual property? Uh, is, there a, is there a process in your mind for, you know what, this is important enough for me to secure the future of my company, my department, my people, my product, that we need to lock this down. Like this has to be protected. So through patents or through secrecy or, or something, something. So can you talk me through how you view intellectual property and then potentially patenting through that context? So what I'd say is at GitLab, it's not... It's not a top priority, uh, far from it. So um, in terms of keeping things secret as a competitive advantage, um, we definitely keep things secret for various reasons, but not necessarily, rarely, if ever. And it sometimes is shocking to me. You know, our competitors can see our product plans. Um, uh, but at the same time, it's because we execute on them, we believe, much better than our competitors. So we don't think that's actually getting information out to our customers and users and our own team members really uh, when we get feedback on it is great. So the, what I talk about is actually the most companies in the previous company I was at would treat that very seriously. And it was a, it was a, a company that Dell acquired and patents were really important. I'd say to them for, in my opinion, a couple of different reasons. Um, one is it was seen as increasing the value of the organization. Um, 
is the more patents a company has, the more valuable it um, may be perceived. Um, whether those patents are actually valuable more than that, sometimes that doesn't matter. Um, so, you know, investors may look at just the sheer number of patents. Um, another is it provides a potential defense against um, the more patents a company has, the more that another company that may think they are infringing on their patents, there may be cross infringement going on potential, maybe not actual but potential, but it provides a defense against that. Although there's other ways to defend about uh, defend against that as well. Um, that that's a second. Now to the team members, um, and sometimes it is real intellectual property. And you really want to patent it, and you really want to take advantage of it and use it in the future and stop other people have a way to stop other people from using it. I haven't seen that happen as much as some places. I think that's the exception rather than the rule. But when it's the exception, it's extremely valuable. It's something you were the first to do something and you patent it and you can you can keep it a, a, a something that only you can do uh, for quite a while. The other, it's great for team members, great for employees as well as some companies have like bonus programs if you get a patent uh, filed, if the patent gets granted later, et cetera. It's a, um, it's seen as a great way to, at some companies, to develop employees and give them something to uh, to achieve. Not all companies do that, but uh, that can be very successful as well. The thing I often wonder about is, do we always know, we don't always know if what we're doing is groundbreaking or patentable or intellectual property, right? Yeah, and it's it can be very surprising. So at the, the previous company I was at, I helped create the patent uh, evaluation program with, with the with the legal team and because pat, uh, doing patents was important there and it, it basically it needed to be unique it needed to be useful and you needed to um, and this is for software related ones technology related ones at least the, the bend on it was was that it needed to be you needed to put your um, draw the line in the sand on the date so I believe you had to file, do the initial patent pa paperwork within a year of the initial idea of being conceived or being made public, if I remember correctly, is how we set up that program. Because after that point in time, the ability to uh, potentially patent it um, goes down. And the initial paperwork doesn't need to be much detail, um, but you need to draw that line in the sand. And sometimes, and this was you know, a security company, that somebody in that company did a patent around uh, making it easier to work in a data center uh, physically without having carpal tunnel syndrome. There was something along those lines. So it was completely unrelated to security, but it was pretty novel. It's a way of, of organizing a physical chair and a pull-out keyboard and things like that. And this person just did it themselves. They created it themselves. And they said, hey, this is really interesting. I'd like to patent it. And um, I believe that, that one was granted. And some of the others were very, very security-specific. And um, it... Um, it, the key thing I'd say is, is also when doing these is when evaluating is having a program, working with it with a good, either an in-house attorney or a outside firm to help create the program and determine what should be patented. It is a very heavyweight process. So I've done three, two of which have been granted already. Uh, and one is, is, is still in the queue at the, uh, the uh, patent office. And the first one was with an out, the, the company brought in an outside firm, and I think I explained the idea, 
with my co-inventors, I think I put 40 hours with attorneys spread out over two or three months, actually more like 80 hours. And it was painful. It was re-explaining and re-explaining and rereading because patent language is very different than normal language. It's kind of an offshoot of different kind of legal language, I'd say. So it's hard to write, in my opinion, it's, unless you do many, many of them, it's hard to write the patent yourself. So using an outside firm, but it was hard for them to get it right. Then the second and third times, the company switched legal firms or switched the people at the legal firm. And it was a, an attorney at both that was also somebody who studied computer science. And it went like gangbusters. It was opposite. I think I spent two hours explaining the idea. And then they went away and came back two months later with something that was 90% correct on how to describe that. And they named that idea ideas on how to improve it. And um, then it was really reviewing it. And then there you go. Um, once it's filed with the patent office, they take a long time. So the one that example that was filed two plus years ago, uh, where I was one of the co-inventors around um, vulnerability disclosure and use of blockchain technologies. Um, I believe we're in year three and the patent office still hasn't looked at it. And the prediction is that the queue is five years. Now the date still goes back to the original date it was filed if it's granted, and that'd be great for the company that owns that patent um, where I used to work. But it does take a long time, so it's a bit deflating. But then once you get it, it's great. You get to brag about it. You get to put it on your, your LinkedIn, on your resume. If people Google search your name, it shows up. Um, one, one of the biggest benefits of it was it's something I can brag about to family members because they understand patents, even though they're not in technology. And uh, they, they get that uh, concept. And uh, you also get a bunch of spam, both in the mail and online because the patent details are uh, public. So it's keeping an eye on that. People offering to sell you um, plaques, showing your patent, uh, just random people that watch the, the recently granted patents. And I'm sure you know some people really do that. Yeah, I love, I love. So let's dig in a little bit to the uh, into the patent evaluation program. So you mentioned uh, unique, useful, and let's just call it time boxed. So what I thought you said was, if I thought of the idea four years ago, and I'm like, hey, can we patent this? You you have sort of a yellow flag go up, like, okay. No, I'd say not if you thought of it four years ago is, did you make that idea public? It's from the time it's either incorporated into a product or, or bragged about on a website. If it's made public, you have a, it's basically a year look back uh, to file. And, and there is some interpretation of that based on how that should work, but that's generally the rule. It's within a year of it being made public. And you also want to do it before somebody else files a patent for it as well, of course. So th there's that as well. So, so, so unique. Is, is that an internal rule of thumb? This feels unique or this doesn't? Or do you bring in outside help for that? It is, what is gut feel? Is have you seen it before? Is, you know, as, as an engineer, is Google searching out there? Has someone done this? And just because somebody's done something similar doesn't mean it's the exact thing. Um, and so kind of doing it informally with an engineer's eye to it. And even if it's a small change on something else that can be patented, even if there's something similar out there but not the same, it's potentially patentable as well. 
Then it goes to a uh, due diligence phase where this is something that the, uh, the legal firms that do this for a living do is they will do a, a prior art search and search for similar things that have already been patented. And we'll bring that to your attention so you can be aware of them and um, make sure that you're not doing exactly what they're doing, but doing potentially something similar or a different spin on a similar thing, et cetera, so you can document it. Um, and make sure it is. And I'd say uh, I, I, I helped evaluate a lot of the incoming patent ideas at that company. At that company's experience, it was very few that didn't get, um, very few that weren't unique from that perspective. It was sometimes just not interesting enough to the company to be patentable for the company. Like it wasn't technology related at all, for example, um, that they decided not to pursue it. Um, and so is that is that the useful category? Like is the uniqueness of this idea useful to us? Yeah, and even at this company, for example, it's a security company, it's something on you know data centers and you know physical chairs and sliding keyboards, very not specific to that company, but was they still decided to patent. Um, if somebody tried to bring forth you know a better way of making scrambled eggs, that'd be awesome, but probably not something that Dell would want to patent. Or maybe they would, I don't know. But you know, it's it's two separate. It's very important and very interesting, but not something that you know that kind of company would find useful to put on their patent books or invest the time and money into. And is the usefulness a function of what you said earlier, like just sometimes the sheer number of patents or for the competitive advantage in the investment world or the acquisition world uh, and or beefing up my patent count so I can defend other patents uh, or employee morale and, and making my employees feel like we value their unique ideas. Is, is that... Is that the category of usefulness, sort of? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Is would a would an investor, whether it's a company that's going to acquire your company or if the company's public, a public investor, find the title of this patent to be interesting to that company, see as its value to the company is one way to look at it. Even if you're not going to take advantage of it, that is one way. It is an expensive and time-consuming way to increase your. Um, increase the value, increase your value with your, those outside the company um, that are evaluating it, but it definitely does work. Some companies have hundreds, thousands and thousands of patents and people definitely see that as value, as, as significant um, value. So, and that was one of the reasons that company did file patents is we wanted to see, it was something that many companies did in the security space to show their value to potential investors. And that's one of the reasons we did it. Yeah, I'm just having a thought about this sort of blanket patenting probably means that everything we're doing is patented somewhere in, on, in someone's filing cabinet, right? I mean... Yeah, it's kind of the antithesis of open source, right? And I think that's why GitLab it doesn't have uh, a similar patent program, is that um, there's definitely a lot of talk of, does it stifle competition? Does it stifle innovation? Um on the other side, does it protect the investment that a company does in their people and in developing these ideas? So there's, there's definitely pros and cons on both sides. Um, and um, the then there's the whole um, of, of uh, being on the other side of uh, a company defending itself from patent, a patent infringement lawsuit, which is um, an interesting space. And I was a part of that once in the past as well, um, which... Um, the, the term is often used uh, uh, patent trolls where companies that I think the definition of that is companies that 
don't do much other than acquire patents or create patents and sue other companies based on those, that definitely does not help the industry. If it's one competitor who has an idea, competitor A and competitor B in the same space, and one has an idea and they want to protect it because they don't, when they release their product, they don't want their competitor to copy it, at least as is, and get benefit out of it, I can see the value of the patent there. If it's a company just creating patents to sue people, to extract money out of them, to get settlements, that doesn't, that doesn't provide a lot of value, except to that company that's doing the suing and making money off of it. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Um, and and patent, patent infringement and, and dealing with trolls is, is there certainly something that technical co-founders and CTOs have to deal with once or twice in their careers, hopefully not more than that. The, the impetus for you to, to, you said you have three patents of which two have been awarded. What was your impetus for doing that? Uh, like, I know you talked about bragging rights, but what was the real reason? Yeah, the primary reason was when I did the first two, when I did the first one, Actually, the first two, it was before that company was acquired. So it was a, it was a private company, um, not liquid yet. And it was a way that, uh, you know, I was a shareholder in that company. It was a way to help do my part to help improve the value of the company because that's what invest, it's one of the things investors found to be invested in. You know, of those two patents that I did at the time, I think it was two of 20. So, you know, it was that, that the company had overall roughly. So it was not a huge number, but it wasn't a small number either. And also I was able to encourage others and help some others with filing their ideas, which was good. So maybe I had a hand in another two to four of them, which was, which was rewarding also to mentor others. But that was the primary reason. Got it. So let's patent this to give our company an edge, uh, make it more attractive for investment. And as you mentioned, uh, would an investor find the patent title interesting? Yeah, I'd say that's key. Is it in the space? Would you, does it sound? In the, I imagine that some investors that are not looking at it in too much detail you know, are looking at the number of patents. Like if you look at, I forget which companies have the most patents, but if I remember correctly, like IBM has thousands and thousands of patents as an example, and they get a lot of value out of it. Are you going to get as much value out of five to ten? Probably not. You know, maybe one or two of those ends up being extremely valuable. But um, as a small company, I would not focus. So this was, this was at the, that company, at the stage where the company was uh, cash flow positive or close to it and was continuing to grow significantly and things were going well and had a stable customer base that was growing significantly year over year. That was a good time to work on this. I wouldn't work on this in the first couple of years of the company, though. Um, I think, you know, growing your customer base, making sure your customers are happy, get, keeping retention in good shape of your existing customers, those are much more important than these kinds of things. It's more of an icing on the cake type thing. Yeah. Okay. And that leads me sort of to my my last question on this, which is when should when should CTOs or, or technical co-founders or leaders uh, look into protecting their intellectual property through patents? In two, in probably two inflection points. One is if there's just such a unique and awesome idea in a space you think is really going to make the company, do it earlier. Um, and especially if you can outsource most of it to uh, a, a firm that specializes in this, so you don't have to do it yourself because it does take a lot of time and specialized knowledge. But that's going to be the exception um, where that's going to be the case. I'd say later is when the company is on solid footing and not worrying about survival, but worrying about how to accelerate growth, 
and potentially be acquired later, that's a good time to do it as well for a couple of things. And I would say is talking to the board of directors as well as companies in my space that have uh, been acquired. Um, you know, what's their patent portfolio look like? What do you recommend we do so we can be on equal footing with them? Is what I'd say. Yeah, it is interesting when I, I've been part of a few, quite a few uh, fundraising efforts and it is interesting that I would say five or six or seven times out of ten, one of the first questions out of a potential investor's mouth is, what prevents company A or B or C from coming and doing what you're doing? And especially in the seed rounds and... I guess this would be a great answer. Well, we have a we have a patent for that. Uh, apropos your your earlier example, like if it's if it's something that you really need in order to gain a foothold, and it serves the fundraising. Um, but I I do like the second one, which is almost like a cross your T and dot your I's kind of thing, where as CTO, look back and start looking at which components of your architecture. Um, you may not have thought about in that context, but what is unique and what is IP and go and do that homework. Very good. The employee morale or I guess satisfaction, uh, th that that's an interesting component I didn't think about, which is if I've got all these smart people uh, working for me, uh, what better way to actively demonstrate to them that you care about their reputation, their future, their career by saying, hey, find your patents or your opportunities to uh, protect IP and we'll help you with our attorneys or our connections to get that filed for you. That That's awesome. It, it appeals to a small percentage, but the ones that it does appeal to, it appeals in a really big way. So at that previous company, for example, I think the engineering team and, and, and other experts, uh, security experts were probably in the number of 300 people. I think of that 310 filed more than zero patents. But, the, so, but it was really, really valuable, those 10, to their morale. Yeah, you have to, you have to address... Uh, some sort of, uh, I guess, a strange bravado or, you know, um, I guess as scientists, we, you know, we kind of have this premise that almost everything has been thought of. And there's a, I mean, of course, the universe is huge and there's a lot to be discovered. But I know my natural tendency is to go towards where well, I'm sure this has been done before. And now you have to put on the hat that says, wow, you know, I might have been the first person to think about doing this. It's usually, in my opinion, it, it's kind of like when starting a startup. It's taking an emerging technology and applying it to an existing problem. And, you know, in a startup, it's all about execution. Having a good idea that, that is uh, valuable to a large number of people and you can execute on it. A patent's kind of similar. It's, it's something that's valuable and takes a new technology in place. So, you know, I, I could talk about the patents that are public as one was looking at um, attacks 
you know, hacker attacks and IP addresses that they were coming from and then running them through an algorithm to then predict future how dangerous is that this IP address? And it was early on in doing these kind of blacklists and whitelists, blacklists and whitelists, I guess I should say, um, I should say, um, to determine what, how risky a packet is. And I thought, this has got to be not, you know, I, this is, somebody must have done this before. And people did similar things in some cases, some of the time, but not exactly that, not the way that we were doing it. So it was pretty unique. Even though it seemed really obvious to me at the time, it's because of the experience I had at that company and working with those technologies and looking at behaviors of, of bad actors and how that showed up on customers' networks. And it, it wasn't all that obvious either to most because they weren't in that kind of environment thinking about those kinds of things. But it, it was obvious to, to myself and to my uh, co-inventors. So um, even though we did a couple of times say, should we even bother with this? This is too obvious to us. But the, because it's obvious to the inventors doesn't mean it's obvious to everyone. But it's easy, it is easy to have that bias. Yeah, and then so you looked at each other and you thought, well, we should patent this. Or we should look into the process. Mm-hmm. That one was an easy sell as well because it was right directly in our space. The other one, which was also granted, was, you know, this was also felt kind of um, uh, obvious to me, was around uh, doing performance analysis of databases, a a different way of doing that, looking at the frequency of queries on a relational database, and then also how long they run in order to optimize a database. Not security related, but this is a managed service, a software as a service business, we have these big databases and they were having performance issues. And I tried to buy, the reason why I knew that one was a good idea, I tried to buy a solution for it, find open source, I couldn't find one. So I had to write one. So that, in that case, I did know it was unique just by its nature because I did, I tried to not solve it myself and I couldn't find a way to do it without building it myself. So do you, as a general rule of thumb, let's say you're the CTO that you do have traction, you do have product market fit, you're cash flow positive, things are starting to go into sort of scale mode. Do you think taking a close look at your intellectual property and what can be patented is, is, is a prudent thing to do? I think it is worth doing over time, especially after um, the company is stabilized for a couple of years. Or again, if you have that really unique, really critical idea that's critical to the company's success and is, is super unique compared to your competitors, it's worth considering that over time. Otherwise, you know, if you had a bunch of patents and no customers, that would not be a good thing to, to exaggerate. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, and then, Wayne, uh, on the patent trolls, being on the receiving end of that, do you have any, like, like what happened? How do you, or I, I'm... So I can tell you my, um, the previous company I was at, that they um, wouldn't call them a troll necessarily, um, but they um, had uh, sued all our competitors for, uh, patent infringement. They didn't have a technology themselves, as far as I could tell, at least. Um, they just had this patented idea, and they waited for our competitors to either be acquired by a larger company or go public. We'll be on the path to that to be to sue them. My theory as to why is that's when stakes are high, and they're willing to potentially settle. And it was um, definitely a big time sink of mine. I was the primary person on the project uh, on the technical side in putting things together with the legal team. And it was gather, follow all the rules of discovery, you know, uh, copy all emails and all files on various people's laptops and servers, gather information back and forth, 
you know, view that information. This is very confidential information, the number of customers that do this or do that, et cetera. Um, and without it being a distraction for the company, which was a challenge as well. And then doing all the preparation of the data, reviewing it back and forth, it probably took up six months of my life. Um, maybe not the whole time, but probably 50% of my time for six months. So it can be very time consuming. Um, and uh, then preparing for the deposition, which was a surreal experience of uh, the firm definitely prepared me well. There was eight hours where um, uh, video, I was being uh, videoed. The uh, had my uh, company's attorney sitting next to me who had, who had spent a lot of that time, a lot of time prepping me. And then the other, uh, the attorney for the other company that was uh, suing that company for patent infringement across the table from me, but that person wasn't being recorded. I was. So it was interesting. And I was prepared well with one exception. So I said, is, you don't have to talk uh, quickly and answer everything quickly. Answer everything honestly. They were very clear about that. But you don't have to answer quickly. Really think about your answers. And also, um, if they ask you to look at something, really do look at it. And maybe you think you saw it before, but you know, occasionally say, this email you wrote seven years ago about this thing or this PowerPoint slide you know, where you said this and this, tell me, you know, tell me about this or that. They'd also ask as, as reporters do leading questions. So is this what happened? That what happened? That what happened? Is that right? And they want a yes or no answer. And you have to really watch that. Uh, I was prepared really well for those things. Um, I did uh, grow and I, I still talk to this days. I never want to hear the phrase again. Do you see it? Because the other attorney asked me that at least 500 times in eight hours. You know, can you go to page 537 and look at email to line 24? Do you see it? Just over and over and over again. The only thing I think they didn't um, prepare me as well for is the person on the other side, um, probably two things. He made a lot of faces, a lot of nonverbal communication, and he wasn't on camera. And I was thinking he was doing that because eventually the deposition would be show, you know, be part of the legal case. And the, the other side, whoever's watching it, wouldn't see that. They just see my reaction. So it would say outlandish things occasionally. And also just kind of wore me down. Eight hours is a long time. And I did a lot of times of 30 seconds just staring out the window, looking at traffic in downtown Atlanta pass by uh, in midtown Atlanta. Because he was thinking about something else, trying to figure out the next thing and see if I'd say anything else. So for example, and he says, so Etienne, what does this email say? And is this show that you were using feature X at feature Y at Y date? And then I'd say, I'd say, yes, I see it. I'd say, no, I don't believe that's the case because here's what the case was. And then he'd, there'd be silence. I'd be sitting there waiting silent. But the other, the attorney would be going, you know, making physical gestures like that, trying to get me to say more. But of course they weren't on camera doing that um, and looking upset that I wasn't providing more. Etc. Those kinds of games I did not like, um, but overall it, it turned out okay. The the, the company um, um, decided to do with the um, uh, case what they thought was right, and overall I know uh, talked to them that uh, they were happy with the result. But it was definitely not a fun process along the way. That sounds terrible. It almost makes me wonder if, I mean, that is extreme, but are there prudent steps that we can take as CTOs to not get into that situation? So, I mean, the whole thing about quoting your past emails, that sounds deadly to me. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was 
And it was like, I'm not joking, seven or eight, nine years ago, a presentation given to a customer about a feature. Um, also, all the trying to find prior art to invalidate the patent that's being used to say you're infringing on it is just so much work, hard to do. It's how to prepare against it, I'd say is, is um, talk with someone who's done it before and think about best practices. Um, if you do get something uh, is definitely hire you know, a, a legal firm that does this for a living early to, to walk you through it. And I'd say also there are, and I don't have personal experience with this and any of the companies I work at, there, there's ways to um, join into, use a long word, but consortiums of companies that own patents, a large number of them, so that if someone is sued for patent infringement to try to get a settlement, that um, if you're part of that consortium, they happen to own patents that they could sue that company that's suing you with. So it's kind of a mutually assured destruction kind of thing um, where you can join consortiums like that where you pay for the privilege, but it's a defense mechanism. I don't have experience with that myself or at the companies I work at, but I think those things exist to help. I'd say is be prepared, um, especially when there's a liquidity event coming, that that's when, um, that's when these companies come out of the woodwork because they know it's a good time to try to get you to settle on something. And also when... If you're watching a patent as well, sorry, if there's one that you know out there when it's going to expire, this patent also in particular was going to expire. It was at the end of its life. So they were working hard to sue two companies at the same time before their patent expired. So that was, that was a, some, a deadline on their side versus something else, but it was the combination. Wow. Well, Wayne, thank you for terrifying me. Um... At the end, it was all about money and the company was okay with where things landed. So... Um, well, I think I think uh, I wonder how many companies get put out of business because they don't have the resources to defend themselves. Um, it's a good point. I, I, my guess is not that many compared to what it could be, and I think it's because the people who try to make a living at doing this only want to go after people with deep pockets because they they have the deep pockets to pay go putting a small company out of business where you're going to, you know, exhaust the company's money. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not financially productive. Yeah. When you go all in on Texas Hold'em, it's like, well, I have what I have, so I, I can't give you more. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a great analogy. So it, it's not as scary as it could be in those situations. And it's, um, it, but it is something to keep an eye on and not something to look forward to. It is not a privilege to be called to do a deposition. That is for sure. That is a fascinating story. I, I mean, you know, it's, it's when you're strong and you're coming in and you just had breakfast and you feel great. And then as time goes on, the dehydration sets in, the fatigue, the, the brain, you know, gets fatigued. And all they're trying to do is grab that 22-second lost-your-cool moment or something, and they've got it. Yeah, it was um, – and thankfully, I didn't. Uh, I was just uh, – it definitely eight hours. They find a lot of time to, to wear – that's a lot of time to wear one down. But overall, you know, I went home, I slept that night, and I could care less. I couldn't care less afterwards. So it was definitely an ordeal, but uh, it had a distinct end at time, which was good. Okay, Wayne, anything else you think you want to throw in or uh, anything else? That was good. I, yeah, it's great stuff. 
<laughs> Wish we ended on a more positive note. That was kind of the uh, the unfun side. But overall, um, I say the most the two big things I was able to do in this in this space is, is one, you know, I was able to brag to family members, hey, there's this cool thing. Here's my name on something, uh, and it um, is one. Um, maybe one and a half is you know being able to put it on my resume, my personal brand, etc. Um, and the other, even on the defense side. I met a lot of smart folks, um, people that were um, had a computer science background, computer engineering background, or also were attorneys. Um, I met a lot of really smart folks. And it was interesting. It was an interesting way to look at things. Don't necessarily want to do it again, but it was it was a learning experience. Um, and um, so I did I did learn I did learn quite a bit from it. I still would rather have not done it, but um, I can't say it was all negative either. Yeah, that's a. I mean, that is as about as positive as it's going to get. And uh, very helpful, very helpful. I I appreciate this just chat on our IP and patents and congrats on your patents and the patent pending. It sounds uh, like you're well on your way with this stuff. So um, thank you, Wayne. Thanks, Tim. It's great talking with you. Have a great day. Thanks again for joining us here in the CTO studio, and thank you to our guest, Wayne Haber. We will see you again next week with another interview. Uh, If you would, in the meantime, though, go ahead and subscribe to this podcast here in iTunes. Check out Wayne's LinkedIn, and do check out 7CTOs. We'll see you next time.